0: Well, we are, as you know, working our way through Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul wrote this letter in prison, and as we'll see, he is, uh, and as we've already seen, he's contemplating, hoping that he will be let out of prison so that he can go visit this church that he planted roughly 10 years earlier. This church, as uh, we've seen, has been a strong supporter of Paul. They love Paul greatly, he loves them greatly. They're not a perfect church, as we'll see. Uh, There are issues going on there that that he's uh, going to write to them about. But in general, they are a very healthy church, and they have a great relationship with Paul. We have been looking at uh, chapters 1 and have begun in chapter 2. This morning, we will continue in chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at two verses, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you, as always, to open them up. Uh, keep them open. You'll want to not only keep them open as I read, but but also during the sermon because we'll be looking at different words closely, different uh, clauses closely. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure so if you were here a couple of weeks ago I pointed out that that if there is a therefore in the text that you want to find out what it is therefore and we see another therefore here that the, the word therefore causes us to want to go back and, and say what what has he just been saying and uh, remember, this is a, a letter that can be read easily in, in, in a few minutes in one setting. It's, it's not that large of a letter. So really, if you've just been reading through it, uh, you'll know that it wasn't that long ago, even though it was kind of a long time ago here, it wasn't that long ago that Paul wrote what's in verse or chapter 1, verse 27. If you go back to that, you'll see that that is where he began to exhort them. He began to command them and encourage them, however you want to put it, to live a certain way. And remember, he, he's, he's, he's writing from prison, he's, he's again hoping to get out, but he might not, and he says, look, I just want to leave this one thing with you. If there's one thing that I can encourage you and impress upon you, it's this. And in chapter 1, verse 27, if you go back to that, he says, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on and and kind of details what that means, And, and that's what he's still doing. If we think of the therefore, yes, it follows immediately upon that amazing hymn or confession of Christ, but set in the context of the entire letter, he's still in this section from 127 to about 218 where he's detailing for them what it looks like to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And he, if you go on and, and look a little bit further, what does he say? In Philippians 1.27, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel. He is talking about you know again he's going to go before caesar he's wait he's awaiting trial he's in prison he's guarded as we've said 24 hours a day 7 days a week by the praetorian guard they come in they're chained to him literally and then they relieve each other every 4 hours another guard comes in and that's how paul's living his life he's he's living his life that way because he's awaiting trial and as we saw he doesn't know how he's going to be delivered he knows he will be saved one way or the other. He's either going to be condemned and be executed, which in, in Paul's mind would still be salvation. It would still be deliverance. He, As he says, uh, to, to depart and be with Christ is far better, to live as Christ, to die as gain. However, he says, but I'm hoping and in fact trusting that, that I'm going to be acquitted and set free physically from prison. Because if I am, then I will be able to visit you, meet with you, join with you again, and help you in, the, in this Christian walk. But, he says, either way, whether I'm present with you or absent from you, just do this one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And then again, he goes on and, and details it. Now, you see, if you fast forward now to chapter 2, verse 12, he's returning again to that same idea. He's returning to that concept of being present with them or being absent with them. Only now, rather than saying, whether I'm present with you or absent with you, I want you to live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, what does he say? He says, whether I'm absent with you or whether I'm present with you, I want you to and the main verb in this in these two verses is work out your own salvation. Whether I'm with you or absent from you, I want you to work out your own salvation. And then as we'll see that main command work out your own salvation is modified in two ways. It's modified in again First way, not only as in my presence, but much more so in my absence. I want you to work out your own salvation. And the second way he modifies it is by saying with fear and trembling. So Paul is saying to these Philippians here in verse 12, work out your own salvation. Work it out if I'm with you. Work it out even more so if I'm not and work it out with fear and trembling. Now the Greek word here, translated, in, in our translation, work out, it means continuing a work to its conclusion or to complete something. Now, Paul uses this word lots. He uses it 20 times in his letters. It's, it's used 22 times in the New Testament. Paul used it 20 of the 22 times. But interestingly, it is only here In this one verse in Philippians where Paul uses it to refer to salvation. Only here where he says, work out your salvation. Everywhere else it's referring to something else. Now, we have to understand here, because this is crucial, that he is speaking here to Christians. He is writing a letter to the church. He's speaking to Christians. It's crucial that we understand this, lest we misunderstand what he is saying. Paul, again and again and again, throughout the letter so far, is making it clear that he believes, he's writing this letter, to saints, to Christians, to those who have been saved, to those who are united to Christ, to brothers, to my beloved. Every which way uh, you read this, he's speaking to believers. He is speaking, in other words, to those who in his mind have already been saved, They've already been saved. In fact, if you think about it, Paul would never say to an unbeliever, work out your own salvation. That would never be his answer. If an unbeliever were to come up and say, how am I saved? We know that wouldn't be his answer because we know what his answer would be because we've already seen it. In fact, in the beginning of this fledgling church in Philippi, the Philippian jailer as an unbeliever walked up to Paul, and and after Paul was miraculously released from prison, said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul's answer to him was not, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Goodbye. His answer to the Philippian jailer was, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Paul, over and over again throughout his letters, when he is speaking about being saved, he make makes it clear over and over and over again that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. Salvation, as far as Paul is concerned, and as far as the entire Bible is concerned, salvation is a gift. Salvation is a gift that is freely given, that is completed in total by Christ and is obtained by grace alone, through faith alone, and through Christ alone. If we want to look at it this way, assuming the Philippian jailer is still at this church, uh, to the Philippian jailer unbeliever, Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Philippian jailer believer, Paul says, work out your own salvation." So, why is he saying this? I think it's crucial to understand this concept because I know in my own life, and probably for some of you sitting here today, you read this statement and somehow you, you, it, it gets confusing because you say, well, how in the world could Paul, I thought, that we're saved by faith and grace alone. So how can Paul be saying, work out your own salvation? What does he mean by that? Did, did Paul suddenly forget what he said everywhere else, and now he's telling us a different mode of salvation? No. He's, again, he's talking to people that he knows are already saved. It would make no sense at all to, to now tell someone who's already saved that he knows is already saved. You now have to work your way to salvation. So whatever Paul means, he can't mean that. We have to understand when we're especially reading Paul, this is found all throughout the New Testament, but especially when we're reading Paul, and you've heard me say this a number of times uh, throughout the nine years that I've been here, but in Paul's writings especially, there are two simultaneous dimensions to the Christian life. And as I've said this before, there is an already dimension and there is a not yet dimension to the Christian life. What do I mean by that? Well, all we have to do is uh, look at uh, various things that Paul says throughout. If we look at, uh, for instance, uh, Ephesians, Paul says on the one hand that if you're in Christ, you are already seated with him in the heavenlies. You're there already in one sense. You're already there. On the other hand, how many times does Paul talk about awaiting that day when Christ returns and when we go to be with him and when there finally we will be with him? Paul even says it in in Philippians, right? To to live as Christ, to die is gain because I will be with the Lord. To depart from here is to be with the Lord. So Paul says the same thing at the same time. Then on the one hand, he's already seated with Christ. On the other hand, he one day wants and longs to be with Christ in the heavenlies. If we look at our scripture passage from earlier, Colossians 3, what does he say? You have been raised with Christ. So therefore, given that you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. Perhaps the most jarring one is when he says, you have put off the old you have put on the new. And then in the same sentence, he says, so therefore put off the old and put on the new. What we find is this already, not yet. We we find that the already is the foundation for the not yet. Turning back now to the concept of salvation, while Paul would never tell someone who is not saved work up your own salvation he will tell people and does tell people who are already saved work out your own salvation in other words just as every other aspect of the christian life there is in a sense with our salvation and already and not yet in one sense as a christian you have been saved. Scripture refers to that as justification. You have been declared just. You have been declared righteous. You will never be more justified than you are now. You are as innocent before God now in Christ as you will be on the day of judgment. There is another sense in which you are being saved. You are in the process of of being made more and more like Christ. That's what we call sanctification. You can be more sanctified tomorrow than you are today. That's something that you can grow in. And one day you will be saved in the future. It's what we call glorification. In that sense, you will be remade and made new and given a new glorified body never to sin again. All of it is yours now. You have been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved if you are in Christ now. What Paul is talking about here in working out your salvation is this concept of sanctification. Sanctification, it is this part of being saved. Remember what Paul tells us as Christians. How are we to identify? If you go back to the very first words of this letter, the primary way that the Christian is to identify is saints in Christ. And If you think back to that sermon, a saint is a holy one. A saint simply means a set-apart one. A saint means someone who has been called out by God from this world and set apart for his special means and special purposes. God set-apart that things that were otherwise common and ordinary, like bread and like goblets and uh, lampstands and things like that, he set certain ones apart and sanctified them to be in the tabernacle and in the temple for his services. That's what we are as Christians. We've been set apart. We've been sanctified. We've been called to be holy. And sanctification is the process by which we are made every day and throughout our life more and more and more holy, more and more and more set apart. Sanctification is a process that God works in us by which we begin to look more and more like Jesus the longer we live as a Christian. And that's why Paul uses this phrase, work out your own subject. I think it's a good, I think that English Wording there is good because it's hard work. It's like a workout. Sanctification is not easy, it's something we have to work hard at doing. It's like a workout. Paul, how does he talk about the Christian life? Paul will oftentimes talk about the Christian life not as floating on a bed of clouds, but as something like a race. A long-distance race that we have to run, that we have to endure, that we have to strive to the finish line. He calls the Christian life a fight, fighting the good fight of faith. What does Paul say at the end of his life when he's writing to Timothy? He's about to die. He knows death is is soon. He knows that he's not going to last much longer. He is uh, beheaded finally. What does he say to Timothy? He says, look, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. And then what does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And then he follows those statements up. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. He says, therefore, or henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. See, when we understand that there is a a concept of having already been saved, being saved, and going to be saved, and all of that is part of the Christian life, then it makes sense of these kind of statements. That Paul could, on the one hand, say, yes, I'm already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I'm already as good as justified. I'm already... Uh, declared righteous in God's sight and yet because I have kept the good fight I have finished the race I will be saved because of my perseverance in this life it's interesting as I was reading about sanctification this week uh, sanctification you could think of is preparing us for heaven sanctification is making us more of what we will be completely when we reach heaven Uh, J.C. Ryle who's who I really love he wrote a book called holiness I would really recommend to all of you read that book it's a great book but listen to what he says there this is really interesting sanctification is absolutely necessary in order to train and prepare us for heaven Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few, it may be feared, take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. See, heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupants are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it's clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we're on earth. What could an unsanctified man do in heaven if by any chance he got there? Let that question be fairly looked at in the face. No man can possibly be happy in a place where he is not in his element and where all around him is not congenial to his tastes, his habits, and his character. Think about that. If somebody in this life hates the Lord Jesus, if somebody in this life would rather be found anywhere but in a church, if somewhere in this life, if, if someone in this life uh Runs away every time a Bible is cracked. How much fun is he going to have in heaven? Where he's going to be in the immediate presence of the Lord that he hates. That's what he's talking about here. Sanctification makes us more and more and more prepared to be in that place of eternal holiness in the presence of Christ. See, sanctification, if you think of it this way, sanctification is something that only a true Christian can ever do. See, if you're, if you're a Christian in name only, if you're a Christian in name only, then you won't even care about being more holy. It's not something that you will even want to do. It doesn't matter. Think of it, I was thinking of it this week, think of it in terms of a gym membership. There are a lot of members at LA Fitness where I, where I go to the gym. I'm sure, I don't know how many. I bet if I looked in their database, there's probably thousands of members there. Everyone who is a member has a, a picture in the computer of them. They have some kind of membership card. Now it's on our phones uh, where we can check in. But there are tons of members of LA Fitness that never show their face in there. They're a member of the, of the gym, But they do no working out. They never never go. I don't know why people do this. Frankly, I've always wondered, why do do people spend the money and then not use it? But they never do anything. They, They have an outward membership, but no inward drive to do what the membership allows them to do. And hence, no one's ever going to look at them and say, hey, do you belong to a gym? You look like it, right? They're not going to say that because they never go. They never use it. There are those, however, that go. They go because they have the drive. Some go every day, all the time, and they work out really hard, and they eat along with it, and those people are definitely going to stand out. Those people are going to have lots of people that, hey, can not only do you go to the gym, but can you help me? I want to get in shape like you. Others, maybe not but they still use it. They still go. See, you can be more or less fit, but only if you have the inward drive are you going to use it at all. It's only those who are members in more than name only that ever use it. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about sanctification, working out our salvation. Paul gives us two ways here. He modifies it, like I said, he modifies this this claim to work out your own salvation in two ways. The first, he says, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Paul, you see, he's saying, I might get out of here and I might take a visit and meet up with you. But, he says, even if I don't work hard to be holy, Work out your own salvation. Michelle, I don't know how many restaurants she's worked in. When I was in seminary, she worked in like three at once. Um, but she'll, she told me, you know, this happens all the time. When the owner of the, of the, of the restaurant shows up, that's when the, uh, the meals are prepared correctly. That's when the right proportions are given. That's when the bussers clean up really well. That's when the, the cooks don't shout at people. You know, when the owner's there, everything runs the way it should. But Michelle will tell you, when the owner isn't there, there are a lot of people that suddenly forget what this restaurant ought to look like. Paul is saying, even if I don't show up, I want you to work all the harder to live as Christ would have you live, whether I'm there or not. In other words, what Paul is saying, their holiness ought to be driven by the presence of God rather than by the presence of Paul. See, We, we don't have Paul to vi- come visit us. Okay, He's with the Lord. However, that still applies to us. Our holiness, our life in Christ ought to be driven more by the presence of God than by the presence of other people we might want to impress. John Owen wrote, A minister may fill his pews, his communion roll, the mouths of the public, but what that minister is on his knees, in secret, before God Almighty, that he is and no more. And I think that applies, just change the, the wording there, and it applies to every Christian. Christian, are you more apt to live like a saint in the presence of God whose presence you are always in or in the presence of other believers? Think about that. Think about that. I mean, how many times have you thought? We we can come up with a million scenarios. The the Christian couple that that decides to have another couple over or, or a few couples over for dinner one night. And two hours before the dinner, the Christian couple are having a knockdown, drag-out argument over something stupid, where they're belittling each other and and saying things that that are really mean and and nasty to each other. And then 20 minutes before the two couples come over, they straighten up. The tears are wiped away, the the tissues, the nose are, are blown, and then the doors are open and there's a big smile on everybody's face. And everybody says, hey, so good to see you. Meanwhile, you're looking at each other like, yeah, we'll, we'll finish this later. <clears throat> well, what does that mean? Except that you care more about what these other Christians think than what God thinks about how you treat each other. I remember one Sunday morning, here I was in seminary, preparing to be a pastor, Studying all week Greek and Hebrew and, and theology and, and studying my Bible and, and reading theological works and my whole life, every hour of my life was dedicated to studying the Bible and studying the God of the Bible. And we leave for church one morning, we're driving to worship, it's snowy, it's sleet, and the, the roads are kind of slick, and this car kind of just like pulls out right in front of us. Now we weren't, our lives weren't threatened. I had to put on the brakes a little bit, and the car maybe swerved a a, a little bit, but nothing drastic at all. And I laid on the horn for about five straight seconds, making sure that person knew that I was really angry at them. I mean, it wasn't a beep. It was, you know, right on the tail. And then, lo and behold, that car pulls right into church where we're headed. (laughs) Well do you think I pulled right in behind him? <laughs> parked right next to him and got out and said, hey, brother. No, Michelle, in fact, looked at me and said, you better keep going. <laughs> so I, I drove around the whole block and then came back and then pulled in and parked. I tried to, we even looked for the car. You remember? like, Don't park next to him. <clears throat> I mean, what, 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 what am I revealing? I'm revealing that... <laughs> Hey, I can hate my neighbor in my heart all I want as long as they don't know, you know, as long as they don't see me. But God, who's with me in the car, he can see it all, all all he wants, and, and I don't care anything about him. You see, Christian, when we are more apt to live like a saint in the presence of other believers than in the presence of God himself then what we're really doing is is we're, we're actually more content to appear holy than to be holy. So how can we begin to live like a saint when it's only God who's present? Well, I think it goes on to the second part here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, those are interesting words to, to place next to each other. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Greek word translated "fear here. It, it has two meanings. It can, it can mean either fear and terror, or it can mean reverence and awe. There is a fear. There is a terror that unbelievers ought to have before God. Sadly, most unbelievers that I know don't have anything like the kind of terror and fear they should. Most unbelievers that I've known throughout my life, they, they think of God, I don't know, there are a million ways that I've seen them think, but, but a common one is that God is, is basically a more benign Santa Claus in the sky. I mean, after all, even Santa makes a list and checks it twice and, and tries to find out if you're naughty or nice, And if you're naughty, he doesn't give you presents. God doesn't even do that. To most unbelievers, his his whole job in life is to make me happy and not care about what I do. So he's even weaker than Santa Claus in terms of his moral demands on people. Either that or more and more I find these days that unbelievers find God a person to actually despise and hate rather than think good about but just that he's in it for me. They think of God as a buffoon or or worse. Most of them, as I see it, never have the kind of fear that they ought to have. The kind of fear that Isaiah had. When Isaiah was perhaps the most righteous man in Israel, the man that God called to be his prophet, when Isaiah, that man, saw the Lord God seated on the throne, he said, woe is me woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts it's it's that kind of fear that those who come to Christ at some level have at some point in their life in their journey towards the cross they realize I'm a sinner and I need to be saved I'm a sinner, and I'm in trouble. I'm a sinner, and my only hope is Jesus. At some level, we have that fear. We have that terror that drives us to the cross. Well, what about now? Because it seems like Paul could be talking about that kind of fear. Because he he couples it with trembling. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That word trembling, it means exactly what it says. It, It means literally shaking or or means literally to tremble. Now, I do think, if I'm being honest, that there is a place at some level for the modern American church for this kind of fear and trembling that I think we've lost. I, I, just, I just think it, it's, it's that way. I think, largely speaking, so many Christians today in the modern American church just have lost a lot of the sense of the holiness and the majesty and the power and the authority of God. We we need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is not our homeboy. That Jesus is the risen Lord. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that when he comes back, he's going to be coming back with a sword sword, And he's going to be coming back to judge. And Scripture tells us that he is going to pour out the wrath of God on this world and on sin. We need to be reminded of that. I think we have lost that. But it's interesting, I think, here when Paul is talking about working out our salvation with fear and trembling. Remember, Paul is an Old Testament scholar. And in the Old Testament, those words fear and trembling in in reference to god were used all the time but in psalm 2 it's interesting they're used in a in a really interesting way in psalm 2 when it's talking about fear and trembling it says kiss the son okay but just before that listen to what it says serve the lord with fear and rejoice with trembling what an interesting combination Not serve the Lord with fear and fall apart with trembling or cower with trembling, but rejoice with trembling. What is it, again, that we are working out? We're working out our salvation. Paul has just zeroed us in like a laser into the cross of Christ and what it is that Jesus just did for us in that great hymn. Paul has has just shown us what it took to save us, and what it took to save us was nothing less than the eternal Son of God humbling himself and making himself nothing and going to the cross for us to bear the wrath of God. He's just told us that. And Christian, I mean, I don't know about you, but, but whenever I zero in like a laser on the cross... When I zero in on what Jesus did for me, I find that so often I have a combination in me of joy and trembling, of happiness and yet at the same time of complete awe that my Lord would do that for me. It's it's almost like you know, you, 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 it's Christmas morning and you, you're opening up the gifts that have your name on it. You open up this gift and it's this Blu-ray movie that you always wanted. And at first, you're, you're super happy that you got it. And then as you're asking around about who got it for you, you realize that it was your five-year-old daughter who gave everything that she had in her piggy bank to give you this gift. And suddenly... you're you're almost more overcome not by the happiness that you have this movie you've always wanted, but at what it costs to get it for you. How can we do this? How can we work out our salvation and be uh, sold out for God in His presence without anyone else around with fear and trembling? Well, Paul tells us in verse 13, he gives us the power to do it. You see, work out, Christian, your own salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who works in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. Verse 13, as as we've already talked about, the already and not yet, verse 13 is the already. It provides the ground for Paul's exhortation in verse 12. It provides the foundation. Paul is giving us a command for the Christian life, but he never gives a command for the Christian life unless it is rested in the fact of the Christian life. That's why Paul will never tell someone who's not saved to work out your own salvation. He's only ever going to tell someone who's already saved to do it. Because we have the power to do it. It is God in us who is working. And notice this, notice that God is working in us not only to do it, but to will to do it. That means that any time, Christian, that you even have a desire to serve God, anytime time that you find that that you'd rather serve God and rather go His way than the way that your sinful flesh would like you to go, you should be on your knees thanking God. Because even the desire to do it is from the power of His Spirit working in you. We we have in us, Christian, a war. A war that, that goes on incessantly ever since the Holy Spirit took up residence. Again, J.C. Ryle, I love what he says here. The heart of the best Christian, even at his best, is a field occupied by two rival camps. Sanctification is a thing which does not prevent a man having a great deal of inward spiritual conflict between the old nature and the new, the flesh and the spirit. There is no proof that a man is not that this is no proof that a man is not sanctified, that he has this battle. Nay, rather, they are healthy symptoms of our condition and prove that we are not dead but alive. A true Christian is one who has not only peace of conscience but a war within. A non-Christian does not have that war. Maybe the best analogy I can give you for this whole working out, working out of your salvation because it's God working in you. Maybe I, I could come up with something better, but for this week, the best I could come up with is our own physical life. You didn't create yourself. God made you. God not only made you, he knit you together in, in your mother's womb. He's the one that, that, that made you be born. He's the one that gave you your life to begin with. And he is the one that sustains your life. It is in Him that we live and move and have our being. If not for His power, you could not continue living one day. You would drop dead. It is His power that's keeping your heart beating. You're not doing that. It's His power that's keeping your brain synapses firing. It's His power that's keeping your lungs working. You're not thinking about any of these things. He is sustaining you all the time. And yet, you have responsibilities. You have to eat. You have to put yourself to bed at a decent time. You have to take walks. Or there are things that you can either do more of or less of, and depending on how you do it, your life that he's giving you is going to be better or worse. But the entire time, he's sustaining you. He's giving you the power to even take a walk. If it's not for his power, you could never decide to take a walk. Same thing with your spiritual life. He is the one who gave you new life. He is the one who knit together your spiritual life. If it weren't for him, you would never be born. You were born again because of his power. He is the one who is sustaining your spiritual life. If it wasn't for his Holy Spirit, you would die immediately. You would fall right back into sin and darkness and run straight away from him. He is the one, day after day, through the power of his Spirit that is keeping you alive. And yet, you have responsibility you have the responsibility to be here every Sunday morning. You have the responsibility to get on your knees and pray every day. You have the responsibility to open up your Bible and read it. You have the responsibility to take seriously the commands that you find in Scripture. All of these things that you do to a lesser or greater extent are going to make your spiritual life look better or look worse. There are two, two things that we can focus on uh, as Christians, we can focus on the perseverance of the saints and the preservation of the saints. God preserves us to persevere. If it weren't for the preservation of the saints, there would not be any perseverance of the saints. I'll close with this what paul is calling us to do is to be more and more like jesus think about jesus in the history of the world there was only ever one person and that's him who lived every second of his life as a saint if you will he's the only person who lived every second of his life to be holy to be set apart for God. Jesus put the will of his Father far and above anything else. As far as he was concerned, he was here to do the will of his Father. It didn't matter what anyone else wanted him to do. It didn't matter what anyone else was asking him to do. As far as he was concerned, every second of his life was for his Father. He lived his life as though it was an audience of one. So Jesus... Whether he was alone on a mountaintop with no one around or whether he was in front of 50 people that everyone else would want to impress, it didn't matter to him. It didn't matter where he was, how many were around, or whether he was alone. As far as he was concerned, the only person he was concerned to serve was God, his Father. And where did that land him? Interestingly enough, it made Jesus... The type of person that some people loved more than anyone else and it made him the type of person that some people hated more than anyone else. It made him the type of person that some people wanted to give their lives for and it made him the type of person that with other people they couldn't wait to kill and send to the cross. That's what it's going to look like for us. If we follow in the footsteps of Jesus We will find that with some people, they're going to love it, and with other people, they're going to hate it. That's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. But thank God, Christian. Thank God that in his infinite wisdom, it was the cross of Christ that gave us life. If Jesus didn't have those people in his life that hated him so much that they sent him to the cross, we wouldn't be saved. In God's sovereign power, that is what has given us life. And we are destined for heaven. We've already been saved, but by God's grace and by the power of His Spirit, He will continue working out and working in our lives that which we work out. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we're so grateful for this reminder. We're so grateful for... Not only the reminder that we ought to be living our lives for you, but the reminder that you empower us to do so. And we pray, Father, that you would grow us spiritually, that you would make us more, more every day, those who are conformed to the image of your Son. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.